Good morning. I'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Jolene. Let's, uh, let's open our time in prayer together. Oh, Jesus, it truly is um, true uh, that we come because you have qualified us, not because we in in of ourselves are worthy to be your children, but because you have qualified us in the name of your Son, in the face of your Son, Jesus. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that um, with eager expectation and, and, and humility that we would come, sit before you this morning, that we would, we would glean, that you would open our hearts and open our minds and empower us to act um, as you desire. As we continue to study through this book, Lord Jesus, that you, like a faithful daddy, would teach his children. Lord, that we would come eager um, to hear from our daddy and desire to, to have you orient our hearts, um, not to love the good gifts that you might give to us and be satisfied in those things, Lord Jesus, but that you would ultimately um, draw our hearts to find the greatest satisfaction in you, the great giver, Lord Jesus. And so I pray that as we um, open up this text that you would guard our hearts and our minds and Allow us to set our heavy burden before you and, and you refresh us this morning. I love you. We ask this all in your name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Uh, 
My name's Jason, and it's my privilege to open up God's Word this morning. We're going through the book of 1 Timothy. We're almost done with this book. We are in chapter 6, and if you haven't already um, opened up your Bible and gotten there, um, I encourage you to do so, that you've got it in front of yourself. And, uh, and as, we, um, as you find yourself there, I'd like to take a couple moments and set the stage this morning um, for this morning's text. Um, and to do that, rightfully, I think we need to go back a little ways. In fact, go back all the way to the first message that was given by Pastor Dan when he opened up First Timothy with us. And um, if you remember, we've chosen a construction blueprint to illustrate um, what we believe is the main point of this book. And that main point is to teach us the proper ordering and conduct of the church. Maybe keep your finger in First uh, Timothy chapter six, and if you flip back to First Timothy chapter three, verse thirteen, excuse me, fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen. That's where we get this main point. And verse fourteen, it says, "So that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God." which is the truth of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So this book was written primarily to teach us, instruct us, uh, build us by God's grace to be godly. Now, Dan pointed out the distinction between uh, godliness and goodliness, right? In the first message, if you remember that, um, godliness and goodliness are different things. And we've seen throughout this book that God has a desire to show us, to teach us, to build us into godly people. But he doesn't just want us to know what that looks like. He also wants us to know where that godliness comes from. Chapter 3, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed amongst the nation, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. See, that is our godliness, the mystery the, the veiled, the hidden, but now seen face of Jesus Christ, our godliness, what God has done for us in the face of Jesus Christ. And God desires to build his godly people, his church, on that person of Jesus. Matthew 16, verse 18, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So God has a desire in the book of 1 Timothy to have a godly people. And in order to achieve that, God has given us a blueprint outlining what he sees as godly and how that's going to come about. And... What's more is that God has um, given us this purpose for why to be godly. Okay? We, God has not called us to be godly today in the world that we live in today simply to look different for different sake. Only to be godly maybe in the future, maybe in the kingdom to come. But today, he hasn't just saved us to be godly so that we act different for different sake 
He has a purpose, and this purpose could be found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. That God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So God has given us the construction blueprint, a building design, construction plans, if you would, um, to be different, to be godly, so that his truth would go forth and people get saved. Do you see the connection? Okay, so that we could be a godly people, the truth of God would go forth, and God would save people, that he would take them from the domain of darkness, and he'd transfer them into the kingdom of his beloved son. So God is building, and he's building with a purpose. He has a purpose from which he is directing our hearts and our minds, and yes, even our actions. He has a purpose for all of this, a purpose for his church, the big C church, that his name goes forth by the godly living of his people in the, in the power of his spirit, and people get saved by the power of his name. See, God has a mission to accomplish, and the building of his church the ordering of his church, the conduct of his church, us, his people, is paramount. That is why he's given us such instruction. It's a big stage. But I think as we dive into 1 Timothy chapter 6, we need to hold on to that. Hold on to the larger picture, the larger context, the larger theme, the theme that God wants godly people. He's building godly people to accomplish the evangelization of the world. That's the purpose for the glory of his name and for the goodness of his people. All right. Now we are ready to get into 1 Timothy chapter 6. Lord willing. If you're a note taker this morning, the title for this, me- uh, this morning's message is a question. Are we built for the gifts or the giver? Are we built for the gifts, the, the good things that God in his kindness gives to us graciously? The common grace that he extends to people, to humanity, or... Is God building us? Is he purposing us for him, the giver? I um, I wrestled with this text a lot this week. Um, Maybe more than than I typically wrestle with a text. And, And the reality was I wrestled with how do the individual parts connect with one another? And then how does that connect with the whole of Scripture? and specifically 1 Timothy as a book. And so uh, my desire here, as we're going to look at in verse 3, is that we would be people that come under what God says in his word and and not to reach um, in any way, shape, or form. And so um, I just appreciate, like, if we just take a moment um, that you just prayerfully consider for me that, like, we don't, that I don't reach for things out of God's text. 
Um, that, that I believe that God has shown some connections here, um, but ultimately want to submit that to him, to trust him with it this morning, and that, uh, that if there's anything that is of this, this, that isn't true, that he just, he just, like, he just flick it away, like chaff in the wind. And, and if there's anything that is, that is here that is of him, by his grace, that he, would, that he would be kind and good to open our hearts and our minds to receive it, and that, that he would um, give us the strength to act on it um, as he desires. So let's just, just take a moment. So, are we built for the gifts or the giver? Roadmap. Um, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and we're going to ask the question, are we built for the gifts or the giver as it relates to the worldly situations that we might find ourselves in? Then we are going to look at verses 3 through 10, and we're going to ask a question. Are we built for the gifts or the giver as it relates to wealth and money? So verse 2 or excuse me, verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters of worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Who here works or belongs to a company or an organization that has a mission statement? Windsor Community Church has a mission statement. Um, can you think about that mission statement right now? Can you recall it? Maybe it's hung up somewhere in your offices. Um, maybe it's behind the receptionist's desk or in the entryway of your offices or your building complex or whatever so that it's the first thing people see when you walk through the door. If a curious bystander asked you what it was, could you tell them? What if a curious, very curious apparently, bystander said, hey, you know, you got a five-minute elevator speech, give me your spiel about what your company does and all that stuff. Could you, could you, could you articulate the mission statement and then could you articulate how that fleshes itself out in the company that you're a part of? Regardless of the words that mission statements have, they usually have the same goal. It's a formal summary of the aims and the values of a company, an organization, or an individual. They aim to um, capsulate what their company wants to be about. And good mission statements... The best mission statements, actually, are statements that, are, that do more than just state things... They shape things. It's a group of ideas that mold and, and craft and include and, and even exclude things based on that statement. It's the aim of what the company wants to be about, what the people in the company ought to be about, what they ought to value. And in 1 Timothy, Paul is writing into a culture and a time period that's unique, and he is writing to a young man that he loves, Timothy, and to a church people that he loves with the desire that they continue to be committed to the mission statement of God, of the gospel 
the conduct of the gospel and the gospel going forth. We can see this clearly in, verse, uh, in chapter 6, verse 1. Look, yet let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that, underline that phrase, so that the name of God and the teaching of God may not be reviled. That phrase, so that, is a purpose clause. It's, it's signaling to you and I as the readers of why what was said was said. Now, let's take a moment and think about that in the context in which it was just used. I mean, any, anybody else find it just, just a tad bit shocking that as Paul is writing into something as wicked as slavery, uh, in this text, he doesn't address the issue of slavery. Instead, he addresses what? The conduct of the slave. He calls them to regard their masters with all honor. And this, this verbiage of regarding um, is, is twofold. It's not just the external um, submission that all slaves were to give their masters. That was required. Okay? Um, Paul is actually digging a little deeper here. And he says, no, no, no. We also want you to regard them with honor internally with your heart and your mind. I mean, think of that. Here's the potential situation. Let's paint a picture. You've got a slave who just heard the gospel of Jesus Christ because somebody shared it to it with him. And he believes it. He repents and he believes in the name of Jesus. And he now has experienced the, the, the greatest form of liberation from the greatest form of slavery, that is bondage and sin, right? Where he was once a citizen following the sinful ways of the world and obeyed the leader of the power of darkness, that is Satan, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. That's where he was. But now he's free, Galatians 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Having canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand, this he nailed into the cross. Colossians 2, verse 14. I mean, this bondservant is completely free in Christ. And yet, is found to still be under a yoke of slavery in the world that he lives in. And Paul, in this text is primarily concerned about what? Not the slaves experiencing the gift of worldly freedom, not the abolition of slavery itself, but preserving and proclaiming what? The name of God and the teaching of God. That's what the clause, so that, tells us. It is for the purpose and the name of God that, that Paul is instructing the slave and the slave's conduct. I mean, it's similar if you continue to look on in verse 2 here. He says, if you yourselves are a believer and your master's a believer, serve all the more. Because in serving him, get this, it's in step with what is godly. In other words, use your station in life to produce fruit for the purposes in the kingdom of God, regardless of where you are. I can imagine Paul saying this to a, to a slave that is now freed by the gospel. You've got a guy, let's say, who just experienced the mountaintop of the glorious truth of Christ. 
and he leaves that place and goes back maybe down to the valley, if you understand that illustration, back to the grind of normal life. Goes, and back, goes back and works for his master. And maybe initially he does it joyfully for the king and his earthly master. But maybe, like all of us, I would argue, at times the reality of the world sets in and maybe he becomes embittered about his worldly circumstances. We don't know. Maybe uh, over time, he, he thinks, the, the freed slave thinks, because of his salvation, maybe he thinks he's better than his earthly master now. Maybe he thinks because he's been vertically saved and experienced the vertical gift of salvation that he ought to experience the horizontal gift of salvation. That is, in liberation. And maybe that embitterment leads to frustration. And that frustration leads to other types of sin, all at the expense of being a pillar and a buttress of truth that points to the giver. See, in God's gospel, God's purpose, God's church, God's people, God's gift, God's mission statement is not a statement, is not a people, is not a purpose that ought to produce bitterness, but brokenness, not one that should breed frustration, but empathy, not one that generates disunity, but fellowship, ultimately not one that produces ungodliness, but godliness. See, Paul's, Paul's chief concern in, in this text is that the bondservant, the slave that's under a yoke as a slave, and for us as the readers some 2,000 years later, is to be preoccupied with God, with God's mission, with God's purpose, with God himself as the giver. That we would be built for the giver, not just his gifts, although they are good. That we would be so caught up with the giver that we wouldn't go chasing his gifts and forsake the giver's mission and his calling. Because the church God wants to build, the church God wants to build in Windsor, Colorado, isn't built for us. And making much of ourselves in this world, making our own kingdom nice and pretty and comfortable not about improving our stock in the world, but making much of God. Advancing God's mission, building God's kingdom. Here in northern Colorado, the idea of slavery is, is I would argue, distant from us. It's, it's not a common thing in the world that we live in. But I, but I think that Paul has something for us to draw from here regardless, and I think it's simple, actually. It's simple in theory, difficult in practice. That there are times we want the gifts of God, the good gifts of God, to be expressed in the ways that we want them to be expressed in our lives. We can have the tendency, I know that I can have the tendency to want to be beneficiaries of the good gifts, even at the sacrifice of God's intended purpose for us as his people. That we can, at times, think that we are built, that we are here in northern Colorado in this beautiful building with among a bunch of really awesome people to be built for us. 
to get things. I think in this text, it could be said that these slaves wanted immediate worldly freedom at the sacrifice of others' spiritual eternal freedom. That the bondservant may have wanted the spiritual gift of health that's to be expressed to them in the way of physical health. Even at the detriment or the compromise of God's mission to draw people to himself using their worldly circumstances to do so. See, the bondservants may have wanted the gift of freedom in contrast to living for the giver that gave freedom to them. God is building his church. Not simply for us to experience all of his good gifts, although they're good, and God gives so graciously. He's building us. He's building his people ultimately for him and his purpose, which is far better, far more satisfying, far more glorious. Let's continue in verse 3 through 10 and ask the question, are we built for the gifts or the giver? In verse 3, Paul continues to communicate here and throughout this book at large and the New Testament at large, that one of the key ways that God is going to build and feed and sustain His church is through correct teaching, through good doctrine. And he contrasts that kind of teaching and leadership found in verse 3, if you look at here, okay, in verse 3, with the opposite of that, which is found in verse 4 and 5. Notice the progression of thought found in verse 3 and how the opposite is shown in verses 4 and 5. Okay, okay. we see in verse 3, good doctrine or teaching is one that agrees with what? The words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of lordship, it's an interesting phrase that he puts, Lord Christ Jesus, right? Lord Jesus Christ, excuse me, okay? Not just Jesus Christ, okay? Lord is an authoritative attribute of Jesus, okay? And at Windsor Community Church, we believe that this this text is the authoritative Word of God. And so good doctrine is doctrine that that agrees with um, this. Another way of saying that, that word agree could be meant to join with or to fall in line with what this says, We believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching and correcting in truth. 2 Timothy 3.16. So that means that good doctrine is not one that comes um, through self-revelation or self-created means. Hey, look what I found. No, no, no. That was good for a time. There's something new over here. Come look at this. It's not found in any other book, in any other place, but right here. Good doctrine is doctrine that already exists, that has been spoken, and is something that is taught by the teachers coming alongside it, and I would argue under it. Compare that with verse 4. 
Poor doctrine, bad doctrine, unbiblical doctrine is grown out of what? Conceit, which means conceit, having a favorable opinions of one's own self-worth and virtue. Hey, look what I know. Oh, you don't know that yet? Come over here. Check this out. So first, godly teaching is one that is found out of God's word when we agree with it. And godly teaching is one that agrees with itself. That is the words of Jesus, what Jesus himself said about himself. That means that it doesn't contradict itself. And it's in agreement with godly living. So the progression of thought is biblical doctrine is doctrine that agrees with that biblical teaching is teaching that agrees with the canon of Scripture, and both of those two things ought to produce godly living. You see the progression of thought there? Okay, if you um, think about some of the good doctrine, good doctrine that could be taught, one of the arguments here could be is follow the rabbit down the rabbit hole and ask the question, is it producing godly behavior? Compare that result with poor doctrine and what it produces. Good doctrine is going to produce godly living by the power of God, in the spirit of God, by the grace of God. But what is poor doctrine going to produce? They produce envy, dissensions, slander, evil suspicions, frictions, and even get this, imagining that godliness is a means of gains. In other words, they think that they are here in the household of God to get things for their gain. Ungodly teaching, unbiblical doctrine can produce a culture within the household of God where the people of God think that they are built, that they have been saved from the darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son for their benefit only. That they are here to get things to enjoy only God's gift, not behold the giver. Many of us are are reading a book by John Piper, Piper called A Hunger for God. And in it, Piper makes this statement. He says, the greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. The greatest adversary adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And as we read through this text, we see that the gift that was desired in this context is wealth and money. Verse 6 through 9. Now, as a church, we just studied through the book of Job, right? We saw a lot of things in the book of Job. One of the things that we saw in the book of Job is that God gave Job abundance. That wealth itself is not evil. That, that God gave Job, I mean, like the richest guy at that time was Job. Okay? You look at Abraham, you look at Isaac, you look at Jacob, like God gave them abundance. Look at the, the, the nation of Israel. Right, Great wealth during the reign of David and Solomon. And guess what? He continues to this day to give saints great wealth. Money and wealth are not condemned here in this text. But the love of money 
over the love for God is. See, Paul warns Timothy and the, and the church in which Paul is writing to that the love of money is a root, not the root, is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, just look at what the, what the text says. Consider, I mean, just consider the progression and the, and the climactic result of loving money and, and where that leads us in this text. Begins in verse 8. Okay, first is there's a desire to be rich. Okay, where does that lead us? Okay, well, that will lead you, the text says, to temptations where people lose their footing and fall into a snare or a trap. You're, you're caught. Okay, and then that leads to deeper and deeper desires that plunge you into ruin and destruction. Consider for a moment some of the biblical examples of people that loved money and what they did for money's sake. Think of Nathan. He's got this parable to King David, right? He goes up to him and he tells him this parable. He says, you got a rich man who owns thousands of sheep. And this rich man covets the one poor man's you. And guess what he does? He steals it from him. Maybe it's the rich ruler who turned away from Jesus after Jesus told him to give everything away and follow him. What about the rich man that neglected Lazarus? What about Ananias and Sapphira who are led to lie to cover up their wealth? The rich oppressors of James' letter, and then there's Judas's betrayal of his master, and the parable of the seed in Mark chapter 4, where people that um, were a part of the church drifted away from the truth for the pursuit of money. I mean, these are just a few of the writings and the stories of the warning of the true temptation to want God's gift of wealth more than want God himself. Now, thankfully, God has given us instruction because he's a good daddy. For our good, how we can, by his grace, be people who are built for the giver and not just his gifts. And that instruction is found in verse 6 with the word contentment. Contentment, the state of being satisfied. So, go be content, church. We're done. Go. Go do that now. We, we have a, in my mind, a, con- a conundrum. Okay, I'm, I'm reading through this text the last couple weeks, and I, and I land on this place, and my, my first question is, how do you do that? How are we to be people, by God's grace, to be godly and exercise the discipline of contentment? How do you do that? If you know any part of my story, I took a large portion of my 20s and I pursued wealth, riches, and fame. If you had a front row seat into my life in the flesh, you would know that I am not a content person. Not content with the car that I drive, the sweet eco-diesel truck, and I want extended cab, and just, I mean, not, not content with the house that I have, I want to finish my basement, because I'm not content with all the stuff that I have, so I want to put more stuff in our basement. 
not content with the money that I make or the size of my business, not content with my son's obedience or my, my wife's faithful service in our home. I'm just, I'm just in the flesh. I'm not content. I am not a content person. So, so how, God, like how, how are we supposed to cultivate, how am I supposed to cultivate a heart of contentment in the world that I live in with the flesh that I have? Have you ever asked yourself that? Maybe you're asking yourself now, how, how, do, we, how do we grow in contentment? How do, we, how do we not go chase the next thing? I think of the movie Up, and I think of that dog. Squirrel. Just like, squirrel. Just, just chasing the next thing. Just chasing the next. Some of you didn't get that. You need to go watch the movie Up, okay, again or for the first time. It's a good movie, okay? Um, I'm, just, I'm just like that dog. I'm like, we're in a conversation, and, and I'm just like, oh, what? Oh, sorry. What was that? I just saw something that I wanted, that I needed, that I thought that I want, and... I just, how, how do we, how are we people that are satisfied so that we ought not go running elsewhere? Let me submit a few thoughts for our consideration. If we, if we desire to cultivate a heart of contentment, if we want to be people that are content and, and godly and exercise um, contentment, then I would propose um, that we need to be people that appreciate what we already have. And if you want to appreciate accurately what you already have, then I would propose you first must remember that at one point you did not have and you were in need. And if you want to accurately remember your need, you got to look at the cross. If you want to be a person who understands what we possess in Christ because of what Christ has done, okay, then you first must remember when there was a place that you did not possess it. And for you to accurately remember the significance of what Christ did on your behalf so that you could be a possessor and not a have-not, look at the cross. Look at what... God did on the cross. Like if, we, if we want to grow in contentment, we must, in and by God's grace, find our motivation and our power in the face of Jesus, our godliness, understanding and remembering the significance of the cross. That, that for our sake, God made him who knew no sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 that we were in great need because of our sin against a perfect God, right? Where the righteous was put to death for the unrighteous who brought us to him. 1 Peter 3.18. Where we were once child of darkness, but those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be what? Children of God. John 1.21 where we now stand with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places where God has given us his Holy Spirit as a, as a, as a, um, in a, a guarantee, that's the word, the guarantee of the inheritance to come. Ephesians chapter one. Like we have so much. We possess so much 
Because our giver has given himself for us and to us. We want to be godly people who have a heart for contentment. Let us daily look at the cross of Jesus and drink deeply of him. Allowing his value, his kingdom, his purpose and mission to give perspective over all this other stuff. And so all this other stuff, some of that stuff is good. Don't hear me wrong on that. But allow the gospel to give perspective on all those other things. Where does this hit you this morning? Have you fallen into a place where you find yourself dissatisfied with the giver and you're out chasing to plug that hole with something else? Maybe you're like me, you're guilty of not being content in Jesus and therefore running and chasing wealth and fame. Because I'm not fully satisfied in my identity and my king and my savior, I go looking elsewhere. Maybe for you, it's some other gift that you think you need to have expressed in your life and you are clinging on to that when you ought to be clinging on to Jesus. Maybe that's your kids. Kids are good. I've got three wonderful kids that I love. But those kids are not my giver. Maybe it's success Maybe it's comfort, maybe it's rest, maybe it's control, influence. Maybe, I, I don't know what it is. There's, there's literally thousands of ways that we can exercise contentment in the world that we live in today with the flesh that we have. My prayer is that, that we would be a people that are satisfied in what we already possess, which is Christ, the giver being satisfied in our godliness where God has qualified you. Being satisfied in the godly people God is calling us to be where God is building his church and being satisfied ultimately in him and leveraging every ounce of giftedness, money, wealth, and time for that purpose. My prayer is that we would be people that are so satisfied, so content in the giver, realizing that all his other gifts are just icing on top of the cake. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is our heart's desire that we would be people that cling to you, that we don't wander from you and, and desire to be attracted to your gifts and replace you as the giver in our, in our minds. And yet I know for myself that I struggle with it every single day. God, where I, where, I, where I love your gifts more than I love you. So Lord Jesus, I pray that in your kindness, Lord Jesus, that in your power of your Holy Spirit, that you would allow us, allow me, Lord Jesus, to, to come and sit at your cross, that I would remind our, our, myself, that we would remind ourselves with the reality that we were, we were in need. 
and you fulfilled our greatest need, that we could be satisfied in the reality of your gospel, your truth, because of what you did on our behalf, Lord Jesus. I pray that you help us to be a church body that never walks away from that, never walks away from the motivation of the gospel for godly living. Lord, help us to, to continue to fan into flame um, the, the, the joys of the gospel and your truth and, the, and what you are doing here in Windsor Community Church and in northern Colorado and around the world. Lord, help us to participate in it. Lord Jesus, help us to use the good things that you have given to us, whether it's time, energy, money, gifts, whatever it would be, Lord Jesus, that we would use those things ultimately to make your name great in northern Colorado and around the world. Lord Jesus, build your church for the evangelization of the world, for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, Lord Jesus. We love you. We ask this all because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Amen.